This is Cauldron's Crypt, episode 14, for May 1st, 2017. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to my dungeon. Welcome to Cauldron's Crypt. I'm your host, Master Cauldron. If you're new to the show, this is a place to dispel myths, get rid of stereotypes, and answer your questions about BDSM. You can call in at 865-268-4005 to leave your questions or visit the crypt at cauldronscrypt.com. Today on the crypt, words really cannot express the level of respect that I have for today's guest or the excitement that I have to be able to talk to him. As a lifelong kingster, a world-renowned educator and demonstrator of BDSM, an author, and the founder and owner of the Crow Academy. He has taught thousands the art of romantic submission and has been an inspiration to countless more, including myself. Today on The Crypt, Master Arcane. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Very happy to be here. I'm very happy to find somebody who is as invested as you into, like myself, helping teach the world about the beauty of the BDSM experience. Uh, thank you so much for that. It's always nice to hear that others with such level of respect in our community giving words of encouragement. So here at the Crypt, before we really dive deep into a lot of things that, that I want to talk about with you, get your years of knowledge on, uh, we like to do a quick rapid fire question response to get to know you. It's called 10 Licks. We all know that you're not a switch. You're not a sub, but would you consent to this? <laughs> yes, no problem. <laughs> all right. How long have you been into kink? Technically speaking, I started when I was about five years old as the only little boy on a school full, uh, excuse me, a street full of little girls. And all of our childhood games, about 75% of the time, ended up with them in bondage. And as the only little boy, I had to play both the hero and the villain in the game. And I found that I really started to like not turning from the villain back into the hero so I could prolong uh, my fellow childhood playmates being in bondage. And then that stayed with me uh, all through. So role play in bondage was how I started. And then my very, very, very first girlfriend uh, actually came out to me first that, that she wanted to pursue that, that she was into role play in bondage. And so it's been there with me for my entire adult life thereafter. Oh, nice. Now, I've already answered this one, but if there's ever been a point in time when you were anything other, uh, let us know. Top, bottom, or switch? Uh, with that same first partner, I'll call her submissive because I didn't really quite understand what master and slave was at the time, but she was submissive to me, especially in the bedroom. One single time, we decided to switch roles to see how it worked for us, just out of curiosity. And I found that I got absolutely nothing from being the submissive. Didn't do anything for me, didn't fulfill me, didn't float my boat, nothing. And she felt like it was so much work to be the top. And she was like, I don't really want to do that again. Can I just stay the submissive? And I said, that's fine. I'm just going to keep doing the dominant thing. And we move forward from there. So that was it. That was my one single experience switching roles. Although I do like to call myself 99% dominant because I am 1% submissive to chiropractors, deep tissue massage, and acupuncturist. <laughs> Very nice. What is your relationship status? I'm currently uh, passionately in a wonderful relationship with my slave, Daphne, who has been my slave for two years. And she's about to sign her, uh, I guess this would be going on her fourth long contract with me. Wow. We're in a, currently in a stage of debrief. I like to debrief between contracts, make sure everything's very well talked about and discussed. And it's a pretty wonderful state to be in. So take this next one how you want, but your favorite position? <laughs> uh, okay, I'm going to say position one. From the Crow Academy style, yes, which is where the slave kisses the master's boot, 
has their hands to the side of the boot, then places their forehead on the boot and waits for further instruction. Perfect line from the back of the head to the tailbone, knees together, feet together, tucked underneath because it's the position of absolute highest respect. It's a beautiful thing. Favorite implement? Ooh, I'm probably kind of old school in that and that I do love my floggers and I have more floggers than I even use, but there's a couple of them that will always, always be in my toy bag. I can relate there. Uh, favorite role play? Okay, well, that's a big, big, big category because Daphne has a wonderful imagination and we construct role plays left and right. So uh, I would say ones that tend to circle around would be a pirate kidnapping a wench. Um, We did a really extensive one because she's a huge Star Wars fan and I'm a big Star Wars fan where she was a Mandalorian like Boba Fett. Mm -hmm. And I was, you know, a Darth Vader like figure uh, who was interrogating her. That was unbelievably awesome uh so between the two of us we get in some pretty complex deep role plays and we have a very very good time with it that's the beautiful thing for me about having such a history with someone being able to to load up those extensively intense role plays oh yeah oh yeah and when you're with someone who has a great imagination and you've got a great imagination it's pretty easy to create some spectacular stuff yes it is uh favorite kink or fetish bondage definitely that's how i started still my favorite favorite place for kink uh, in my own dungeon playroom that I designed, which uh, no longer is in existence. It was dismantled in, earlier in the 2000s, but uh, will be rebuilt again someday in the third iteration of the Crow Academy venue. Excellent. Strangest place you've had sex. I think I mentioned this to you once before that it was with my first girlfriend, the submissive, and it was in Vancouver, Canada, and it was in the botanical gardens in broad daylight where we had an umbrella to uh because they said it might rain and the she was sitting in my lap with her pants down and the umbrella was held in front of us in this little alcove area so people just thought it was my girlfriend sitting on my lap they walked right in front of us and we just smiled (laughs) that's awesome uh this next one uh and this is the final one for these i'm sure you have an amazing answer for this with your imagination something that you want to try what's what's on your bucket list okay well there's there's one that is not going to happen immediately and there's one that just became within reach and that is to have uh, it's not necessarily a kink but it is uh both daphne and i she just got her scuba certification and i'm a former instructor we want to try sex at 30 feet below the surface of the ocean in not sitting on the bottom of the ocean but sitting in open water Mm -hmm. Floating in open water, I should say. So that's the one that just became within reach because she just got certified. And then the other one would be zero gravity when we finally have the ability to, you know, be in outer space. Oh, sex wow. and zero gravity sounds like a lot of fun. And then, of course, that would escalate to bondage sex and zero gravity, <laughs> et cetera. Of course. <laughs> of course. <laughs> yeah, that that is actually one that is on mine. Now, I've not really thought of the scuba diving, but I, I'm kind of geeky at times when it comes to wanting to head to outer space. So those are awesome well, answers. If you're going to have sex on scuba gear, just make sure you are very well trained because uh, one of the things that I literally have had this conversation with Daphne is is that she has to be very, very good at her buoyancy to be able to not float upwards and not float downwards, not sink downwards. And I'm going to have to have her prove that to me before we actually attempt this. (laughs) 
I imagine it would carry a, a pretty high level of risk, which would make it even more arousing for me. And and I come from a school of scuba instruction where we put safety very, 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 very way above and beyond the top of what you, what you look for before you try having the, the more adventurous experiences. Uh, it makes a lot of sense because everything that I've read that you've done, your newsletters, your book, listening to other interviews that you've had, you put an extreme level of safety into your BDSM as well. So. Yeah, well, because let's let's think about this. This is my partner. This is the woman I love. This is she may be submissive to me. She may be my slave. That is the context of a relationship. But like I tell people, no matter how deep the roles get, you are still going to be two human beings with real human needs and real human desires and a, an extra strong need to communicate. So if I'm investing this much into my partner and I love this person, then yeah, no matter what we do, we can go to the very, very, very far ends of where our limits are. But it has to be that safety component because no matter what, we want to come back to a place of even if I push the scene super far to, to extreme levels of sadism and masochism and uh, push her as far as she can go. And it goes on for hours. At the end of it all, we want to be curled up in each other's arms, smiling and reminiscing about just having had a fantastic shared experience. Absolutely. On those same lines, there's there's two follow up questions that I've got for that one. The first one, you use the, the term slave. And I love how you explain to people because of the negative connotation using Alice through the looking glass. Could you offer that up to my listeners on how you, you differentiate the vanilla world and the BDSM world when it comes to, to the terminology? Yes, and I'd be very happy to. What BDSM, the world of BDSM, we have all of these words like slave, dungeon, whipping, torture, all these words that mean horrific things if you go back in history, the history of humanity, the history of civilization. In the BDSM world, the terminology has such a different meaning. Uh, my, my latest actual uh, kinky political platform is, is let's start inventing new words because of the connotations these words have from human history. So the analogy of Alice in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass is that in the room where Alice stood looking into the looking glass, there was a grandfather clock, there were tables, there were chairs, and there was the postman outside. In Alice's normal world, the vanilla world, the postman was a postman, the tables were tables, the chairs were chairs, and the grandfather clock was a grandfather clock, and the flowers outside were just flowers. Once Alice stepped through the looking glass into the identical looking room, the tables and chairs danced, the grandfather clock gave advice, the flowers sang, and the postman was a giant lizard. The point being, the Wonderland side... That's our fetish world. And if you look into the looking glass, you're going to see the same terms. The word dungeon on one side, the word dungeon on the other side. The word slave on one side, the word slave on the other side. The word pain on one side, the word pain on the other side. On the vanilla side, these words have meanings that we are not attracted to as a rule. That defines something that we would consider negative. Through the looking glass on the Wonderland side, which is where all of this takes place, everything we're going to talk about today, dungeon is a room of high erotic activity. It is a room that titillates people. It's also called a playroom. And I've seen some beautiful, beautiful dungeons. A slave is someone who is so invested in serving the one person they've chosen to be their master, the one person they trust to that degree, that they have proven themselves, proven their devotion, worked themselves through their own shortcomings or limitations to become a greater and greater human being over a period of time until finally 
The dominant one day says, I wish to be your master. Do you wish to be my slave? And offers them a contract or collars them with a ritual and a ceremony, sometimes a celebration and a party to accompany it. It's a very, very beautiful, extremely positive term of appraisal. The word whip on the outside in the vanilla world was something that was either used for you know, Buffalo Bill Wild West shows, or it was used back during uh, the very negative connotation of slave, which is non-consensual uh, stripping of human rights. And it was used on these people as absolute punishment against their will, nothing positive about it. But you step through the looking glass into Wonderland, and the word whip is this delicious tool of physical sensation that for many people, for example, in floggers, it's more like getting a really, really intense, but awesome massage. Right. So- that's the basis of the Alice in Wonderland image is that because we use these terms, if you hold high the Alice in Wonderland through the looking glass idea, you can clearly separate the vanilla connotations of these words and the kinky fetish connotation of these words, which are not the same. No, not at all. That is the best way I've ever heard that described. And that's one of the things I wouldn't say that I get hate mail, but the emails that I've receive that are of a little bit negative connotation, that would be uh, the majority of it is because of the vocabulary. It's true. And that, that's that's why I really wish that, um, I mean, at some point, I think we're all going to take that step and begin to use different words. The word top and bottom sort of evolved in a nice way to differentiate uh, people who are purely into the physical space, being flogged or using the flogger. Uh, the word pain, I actually try to avoid using the word pain in discussion. And I actually refer to it as skin sensation intensity or intense skin sensation or skin sensation threshold. I just actually was answering somebody's uh, question not too long ago where I told them they're asking about, you know, what if the slave wants pain? And I said, well, first of all, let's discuss the fact that we're not talking about stubbing your toe or hitting your thumb with a hammer. We're talking about intense skin sensation. And then I went on to talk about skin is this amazing, amazing erogenous zone that covers the whole body. And it has all these different kinds of sensors. It has texture sensors and it has pressure sensors and it has uh, temperature sensors and all these different kinds of things. So it's no longer about this general thing called pain that we're, we're trained to avoid. Instead, it becomes about figuring out which of the sensations does this particular submissive like, this particular bottom, and then to what degree, measuring. Where is it the point at which their sensation is intense enough to make them really happy and feel really good, but not go past that point? One of my absolute favorite, if anybody in the audience right now has somebody to whom they want to explain BDSM and why people do it, what's it all about? I'm talking about the physical aspect. The best analogy that I've ever found is that everybody has had the experience of having a long, hard day at work or they, they just did a really intense workout or something like that and they want to take a hot bath and they come home and they turn on the bath and they turn on the cold and they turn on the hot and they adjust it to a temperature by putting their hand under it that they're pretty sure is going to feel really good, really relaxing and kind of get into their muscles or just help them relax in general. And then they let the bathtub fill up and they turn off the knobs and they go to step in the bath. And when they step in the bath, it's going to be hot. And that first feeling as you put your foot in the hot bath, it might be a little bit of a shock, but it's still positive. And the person still continues to immerse themselves into this hot bath. And that is exactly where a perfect threshold, when it's being met within the world of S&M, that is exactly where it's supposed to take you. That is what S&M is about. People who these sensations react on their body 
like that hot bath. And it can change. Someday you'll want the temperature a little cooler. Someday you'll want the temperature a little hotter. Well, the same thing in S&M. Some days the bottom can take a heavier toy. Some days the bottom wants more lighter toys. I once had a uh, physician that I worked with that was SM friendly tell me that really the the body only has one type of receptor uh, when it comes to pain and pleasure, that our bodies are designed to accept pleasure. And the only time that we experience what we translate as pain is when these pleasure receptors become overstimulated. Mm. Yeah. So I found that to be something very fascinating that goes exactly along with what you're saying. It's that step into the tub and that initial, Ooh, shock. (laughs) Yeah. So when it feels super good, that's when you're at your threshold. That's that perfect place. I have a system that I teach my submissives, which is a five, I call it the five finger system. You you read about it in the book. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, where three fingers means perfect, two fingers means not quite in my zone, a little more intense, please. One finger means, yeah, that's way too light for me. Four fingers means, hey, that's a little past the perfect point, but I can handle it, pushing my limits here. Five fingers means, yeah, that's getting to be way too intense, but it's not quite at a safe word point. And so like what you're talking about is that according to that physician, the nerves, uh, the receptors are all looking to be at a three. Mm-hmm. But sometimes they get pushed to a five or beyond, beyond a five, and then it becomes pain. Yeah, and that's yeah, I love that system as well. I've I've used that for many years, and in one way or another. And then I actually heard you or read, you know, where you were uh, talking about it. I'm like, oh yes, <laughs> that you is know, perfection. I can, <laughs> I can tell you that when when my slave learns that system and can do it on their own, mm-hmm. signal me with their hands. Uh, let's say she's up on the St. Andrew's Cross and I'm using all kinds of toys on her. Mm-hmm. I love knowing that my slave is is in that three finger position of just that she's in her bliss. She's in her zone. And I still will take it past that to a four. I consider a perfect scene to be a lot of threes and a good handful of fours. But then knowing that she can signal me a two, like I'm thinking, wow, I'm going pretty, this toy's intense. I'm going pretty heavy with it. And all of a sudden she gives me a two finger. I'm like, oh, really? Okay, awesome. She wants to go a little heavier. It's a wonderful system. And if the slave learns to signal you on their own when they need to, it kind of starts to ensure perfect scenes every time. Yeah. Yeah. Going back, I said that I had two questions come out of what you were saying there. Uh, the yep. first one being the one regarding Alice. The second one is safety. We've got safe, sane, and consensual. And I always add informed to that because I believe you cannot consent unless you are informed. Uh, I like that. But there is also rack and prick. Yep. Okay. So where do you stand with those? Okay. Well, going back a little bit, we are now in what I call the post Fifty Shades era. Mm-hmm. Fifty Shades of Grey came out. It's a horrible, horrible book. But let's face it, the, the statistics, these are real statistics. One out of every 37 literate adults over the age of 18 on earth has obtained a copy of that book. Wow. That book has done amazing things for opening up the conversation. There's a lot of misinformation. The misinformation is phenomenal. Mm-hmm. You know, you go into a BDSM store and you're chatting with a person on the counter and they start telling you a story about some guy bought, you know, came in and bought a mixture of really light, badly made toys and then really intense over the top expert advanced toys. And the shop worker asked them, like, do you know how to use these? And the man's reply was, oh, I read Fifty Shades of Grey. Yeah. And everybody in the shop who hears the story just cringes. We're like, ah, oh, it's horrible. So therefore, the SSC system, which I am now going to, I'm going to borrow what you said and call it SSCI, by the way. So thank you for that. Oh, absolutely. Thank you. I think that's brilliant. That's brilliant. So the SSCI system, 
is really, really good for beginners when they understand what you mean by saying safe and consensual. Consensual is just bottom line. That's just where it all starts. If it's mm-hmm. not consensual, you don't do it. Uh, I don't know how much your audience is, is aware enough to understand the, the concept of consensual non-consent. I'll let you decide if that's something you want to talk about. Uh, I've actually got a couple of episodes uh, on that and another one coming up with my new co-host. So. Okay. Um, yeah, because that's, that's, that's an advanced concept, but it's a real thing and it can be really wonderful for two people who both get that. But in general, for all, what happened after the post-50 Shades of Grey era is like on FetLife, for example, when FetLife went from two and a half million users to now it's up to five million users. So for the the years before that, it grew very, very slowly. Then 50 Shades came out and the membership skyrocketed mm-hmm. out of control. And But a lot of these people who, who are honest and they, they mean well, they really don't have the faintest idea where to start. So SSC is a great thing to teach people who are new. For example, you know, you don't pick up a toy. If someone says, I have a hard limit against that toy, you don't use it on it because they're not consenting to that toy. This alone is a huge concept for absolute beginners. So I like to teach that SSC is a really good way to start. I do believe if you're going to use SSC in an instructional format, you need to kind of define it for people. What does safe mean? Safe means you're not going to actually harm the person. You might give them really intense skin sensation, but you're not going to harm them. Sane means you're playing in a way that you both know that at the end of the day, no matter how wild and crazy you get, you're both going to be okay, you're going to be, no one's, no one's going to get harmed. As we said before, no one's going to be feeling bad about themselves or about the other person. You're both going to be able to get back to being normal, happy human beings, sharing an experience together without any kind of intentional or unintentional trauma happening. And that's the same aspect. It's a really good foundation. Now, RAC, risk-aware consensual kink, to me is for a slightly more advanced group. And by the way, I talk about SSC and RAC alongside uh, a co-presenter, Master Thorne from Australia. Oh. And in a whole series of videos and audio uh, lessons that we're going to be releasing on the Crow Academy very soon. Oh, I can't wait for that. And so rack is for people who their feet are wet. And this is my opinion, of course. You know, you might feel differently. But rack is for people, they understand SSC, and they decided they want to push the boundaries a little further. There's a famous BDSM author of yesteryear who had a – he was a sub. Great. He wrote uh, – he wrote kinky horror fantasy and his dominatrix was really intense i mean she definitely was capital s in her sadism Hmm. and they liked to push the limits of how far they would go so they were definitely more rack than ssc but they were highly highly experienced and they believed that they knew that because this intense use that there was a risk here, there, or in some aspect, but they both accepted it. They both acknowledged it. And they would tell me stories about some of the scenes they did. And they're not scenes that I would do. Those are way too intense, uh, way beyond what I would ever want to do with my slave. But for them, it made them both happy as clams. And they were in love with each other. And this is how they played. There is the entire world of edge play, which for people who don't know what that is, edge play just means pushing yourself or pushing the sub to a mental, emotional, or physical extreme edge of where they have previously gone. It does not necessarily mean the use of knives or edges in any way, shape, or form. It can, but it doesn't necessarily. So edge play is very, very advanced BDSM. And so edge play would fall under rack. I feel like SSC and Rack really kind of provide a good basis to understand good place to start. And then if you find that, hey, this really floats my boat, I really am in a BDSM, I want to explore into more intense regions, then you can go into more of a Rack headspace where, uh, again, you can almost put the I on the end of Rack, R-A-C-K-I. 
that both people yeah. are fully informed about what they're going to do. Both people are aware that they're pushing limits farther. You know, in all cases, you got to have great communication to be able to talk about all this. And then they both mutually consent. Yes, let's go there. Let's do these kinds of scenes. And they have a great time. Yeah. Thank you for that. Let's kind of shift gears a little bit and get into the the Crow Academy. In my introductory episode, I briefly mentioned you, your style of DS, and the Crow Academy. Can you give us uh, some real details on exactly what the Crow Academy is, how it started, what your mission is? Is it a physical place that people can go to learn, or is it primarily online, video? What is it? Sure. The Crow Academy started in San Francisco in the 90s. And it was an actual venue. It was my own home, very large place over in the east side, East Bay of San Francisco. And I had a beautiful dungeon in there. And because I primarily got my feet wet and learned about the kink scene in Europe, and my mentors, my teachers were very, very extreme, very intense players, beautiful couples who that their energy was amazing. I mean, truly amazing. There was this one couple who would do shows at a lot of the events in Europe. And he would pull out a riding crop and some leather cuffs. And that's all. And they would be on stage and you'd be in a club full of people dancing and doing BDSM scenes everywhere. And when this couple came on stage, everybody stopped. People stopped dancing. People would take their partners off the St. Andrew's Cross and unblindfold them and be like, you got to watch this couple. And he would do the entire scene with leather cuff bondage and a riding crop. And it was mesmerizing. It was so beautiful because they were so deeply, passionately connected. And those, that couple was two of my teachers. Another couple opposite this were wild, crazy, almost like rubber ravers, we call them, because they're super into latex. Mm -hmm. He always wore a gas mask. She was a fetish model. But in their private scenes and games, they were very much rack. They really, really, really pushed the limits. And so they were always telling me about their scenes. And if I did a really intense scene, I would debrief with them as well. And we would talk about it. And so this is how I learned. So my first beginnings of my style as a Dom, the Crow Academy style, was based on the understanding that it's not about how many toys you have, that it's about the energy and the connection and creating this magically beautiful shared experience that I saw with the first couple I described. And then from there, the other couple really opened my eyes to the incredible variety of ways you can play from simple role plays all the way through to edge play. And that was what I brought with me back when I moved back to California. And so at that point, the San Francisco scene, because that was kind of in the middle of the AIDS era. Mm -hmm. And so the emphasis on extremely clean and sober play was, was above and beyond. The many, many dungeon parties that went on at that time often had the exact same rule. If we find you are intoxicated in any way, shape or form, you will be asked to leave. Period. No alcohol at the venues, nothing. Some of them would even say, we will also write your name down. And if it happens a second time, you will be blackballed from our events permanently. The beauty of this is that we also learned, all of us who were in the scene at that time, um, and I was also part of a group who emphasized slaves as property, master-slave relationship, mistress-slave relationships, and very intense BDSM and edge play. And so we would all teach each other. And again, in this very clean and sober environment. And this was how we all learned about the natural endorphins of the human body and how nature's best drug is already in your body and it's called endorphins. And this too affected the evolution of the Crow Academy. So when it came turn for me to start teaching what I knew to others, this was the basis that I came from. Beautiful romantic connection, 
first and foremost, between two people, between a master and a slave or a mistress and a slave. Also, the idea that BDSM is absolutely a viable altered state of consciousness. Mm-hmm. The Dom, as a Dom, I go into a, like a trance state that I love, where the rest of the world kind of vanishes, and my ability to read my slave's body language just goes through the roof. Outside noise becomes extraneous, except for uh, perhaps music. I might find myself whipping and flogging in time to the music or something like that. So uh, the Dom has an has a altered state that we can go in as well, which I, I like to teach that to other Doms. The submissive lots of endorphins and the whole opiate reaction within the body of the natural endorphins of the human body. That's wonderful. And then the group I was with, which at the time was called the Order of the Cobra, they were very much about, like I said, pushing the limits of BDSM and adding that almost ritualistic element into BDSM, all the positions, all the etiquette, all the protocols. And as a group, we would begin to form our own styles that placed an extreme etiquette on all of this etiquette and protocol that had gone on from before. Much of it was very, very, very old, handed down word of mouth, word of mouth, word of mouth through a very, very long time. A lot of it can be traced back to Northwestern Europe, Victorian era, etiquette and morals, the original, original Hellfire Society, that kind of stuff. So you're referencing the Gorian style? Not the Gorian style. And, and that's, that's a separate topic, but I'd be happy to talk about it. More just the, uh, the idea that what is a slave? What is the most beautiful aspect of being a slave, of serving the Dom? What, why is that fulfilling to the submissive? Where is their empowerment in there? Very important concept right there. How is the slave empowered by being a slave? What makes a slave able to be empowered by that? Are there personality traits? Is there something that can be trained into them? All of these concepts. So again, that was a huge influence on the beginning of the Crow Academy. And you'll still see uh, of the 22 positions in the Crow Academy, at least half of them came from that time period. I took a lot. There's many, many other positions that we all shared with each other. But I wanted the Crow Academy to be a very utilitarian style. So the 22 positions of the Crow Academy that you read about in the book, Igniting the Fire, The Art of Romantic Submission, positions were <clears throat> taken from that time period and then refined and refined and refined until I came up with positions that are extremely useful. Uh, there's probably five to seven of them that I still use all the time, constantly. They work very, very nicely for all kinds of situations. And then some are more reserved for showy uh, moments and whatnot. So that became the Crow Academy. And then when I had the actual facility in the East Bay of San Francisco, that was when it all started to come together and the, uh, the actual website was created, which, of course, led to the book. Mm-hmm. And since then, it just keeps growing and growing and growing. And I travel around the world and I teach and I show people about this DS style, which, again, emphasizes romance. Uh, I am a big proponent uh, of the I wouldn't say monogamous BDSM DS, but I do push the idea that. There is an incredible, incredible beauty to be found between one dom and one sub who massively devote themselves to each other and really reach for what I call, with a capital A, the art level of domination and submission, that they really try to build something that is very exceptional, very above and beyond daily life. And that's, that's wonderful. Now, everything I teach can definitely be applied to any form of polyamorous interaction. But I'd say the Crow Academy tends to, when I discuss the techniques, I tend to discuss them between one dom and one sub. And if the people care to extend that, it applies, it can apply to any gender, any gender combination, any poly combination. But that's my focus uh, at the start, at least. When I train in person live, when I do private trainings, I only train couples because that's my personal joy is to see a couple discover this magic for themselves. How long uh, 
of a period is that training when you do those private trainings? With uh, that can range. I have clients who come over on an hourly basis. Uh, once in a while, I have people flying from out of town for an entire weekend, 10, 12 hours of training, a contained period like that. Wow, okay. Excellent. One of the questions I get asked a lot uh, as a master in the name, newbies will sometimes, and even veterans of the lifestyle, will hit me with two questions. And I'm sure you've got these over the years as well. But one, what makes me a master or what makes you a master? And what is the difference between a dom and a master? How do you answer those questions? Well, let me start off by talking about the difference between a dom and a master. That in my style, anytime I meet a new submissive, they are a play partner. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of the first level of stepping into my life. They are a play partner. We will have an obvious date, uh, meet at a coffee shop, whatever. We talk. We talk in a very public and safe place or we meet openly in a, in a fetish club or something like that. And I find out about them. I want to know as much about this prospective submissive as they want to know about me. I want to check them out and vet them before I admit them into my life because I know that if things work out down the road, I will become very invested in this person. So first they start off as a play partner and then we play together a handful of times and it goes really well and we both seem to have good communication and the debrief is really nice and both really like the experience of playing with each other. And then at some point that interaction might become exclusive and I might say, I want to be your dom. Or they might say to me, I want to be your, your submissive. And then begins the real building of the DS relationship. And that we might be living together, might not be living together. It might be long distance. It might be same city. And after a time goes by that we've established that our DS, our dominant and submissive activities are very, very high quality. With no time limit on this, no set agenda, there might come a day where I offer this submissive to become my slave. So my definition of master and slave, first of all, is a contracted or openly acknowledged by a caller or something like that. It is a very deep commitment. Each level is a deepening of commitment from play partner to dominant and submissive, deepening of commitment from dominant submissive to master and slave, much bigger deepening of commitment. Mm -hmm. I don't sign a slave contract unless I know I am going to invest in this slave personally as much as I expect them to invest back into me. Another great dominant, uh, Master Orpheus here in San Francisco, here in, uh, sorry, Los Angeles, he had a great saying. He said, the dominant commands and instructs the slave, the submissive. The submissive serves the dominant, and both the dominant and submissive serve the relationship. And by extension, I picture it as a garden, that the dominant and submissive are creating this DS garden, and it takes both people. There's a mistaken concept out there that it can be one-sided. The dominant does all the work and the submissive is just on the receiving end or the opposite, which is just as wrong, that the submissive does all of the duties and chores. The dominant sits back and does very little. Both are wrong. Yeah. Yep. That's what I I see a lot of the insta-doms from the Fifty Shades coming out saying, well, I can get into this and just sit back and be treated all day long and and I don't have to do anything. Yeah, completely wrong. I mean, uh, yeah, big, big misunderstanding there if they think that. Um, Both people have to invest in this garden. Both people have to keep it healthy. They have to pull out the metaphorical weeds. Uh, When issues come up, you have to discuss them in a very healthy manner and you end up with this amazing beautiful shared experience, the shared garden of DS. And then if that garden is really wonderful, if it proves to be exceptional, then the two people might choose to turn it into master and slave or mistress and slave. So that's my basis of what it means to to be a difference between dominant and master. 
Okay. Master to me means you actually own a slave. You own some female. And when I say own, of course, we're not talking in a legal sense. We're talking in a mutually committed and openly acknowledged sense. Right. It's a very exclusive kind of relationship. Referring back to Alice <laughs> through the looking exactly. glass. Exactly. I also, as I said earlier, a master also, to be someone's dominant in general you need to be working on yourself twice as hard as you're working on your submissive. So the word master also has this word that means I am going to live up to this. This is this is the Crow Academy definition. I am going to live up to this in such a way that I am making myself into the right leader for my slave. We work, we work on ourselves mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually, intellectually, so that we can really live up to being the leader to our slave. Um, does it mean... Can two people who are very new but have a very sincere experience and desire to pursue this, could they be called master and slave? And the answer is yes, they can. Master does not, in the way I define it, it does not necessarily mean I have this enormous variety of skills and I've been at this for decades and decades and decades and there's not a toy you can put in my hand that I'm not immediately amazing with. It doesn't mean that. It can mean that, but you can also be very new with your partner, DS, a couple that trains with me, they've been together about five years and they wanted to get into this. They had played on their own. They saw me once a month for about a year and they became master and slave without having anywhere near the experience that I have. And that's fine. For them, the word master and slave reflected that commitment, the collaring, the contracting, the dom of the two of them was absolutely devoted to becoming the best dom he could possibly be, which is just beautiful. When I see someone hear that, say that, tell me that, it's wonderful. I think that is the right attitude. Mm -hmm. And she was very committed to being his slave and learning to serve him well and be able to put her ego aside for this one man she called her, her master. And so, yes, that was a viable master-slave relationship as well. But the main quality was deep and sincere commitment to both really make this real and really create that beautiful shared garden. I think people are so used to the vanilla world that when we use a term like master, they automatically think of it as a status symbol within the community. That might be true. And I think maybe back, you know, many moons ago in the old guard days, that might have had a stronger connotation. I think nowadays, if a person's coming from the right place, and this is, again, this is just the Crow Academy definition. If they're coming from the right place and they do have that deep commitment towards their slave and the slave is owned property, collared, contracted, something like that, then I think it's okay to say you are that person's master. That's a big definition right there, a big distinction. Mm -hmm. To be one person's master is to define a relationship. To say, I am a master is a grander state that you're making, a statement that you're making to the community. So to say, I am a master, well, the first thing that comes to my mind is like, you know, some of my martial arts teachers people whose skills were so phenomenal. Yeah, you know, they spent 25 years perfecting their martial arts ability. They're definitely a master. I, you know, they know what they're doing. Mm -hmm. In scuba diving, you have what's called a master diver, which is our master instructor, which is an instructor who teaches instructors. And yes, the word master there has that, that meaning you're talking about, the more vanilla context. So I think it depends how the person uses it. If they try to say, I am a master, you know, the first thing I'm going to say is like, where's your slave? Right. And if they don't have a slave, I'm going to say, have you ever had a slave? If they say they've never had a slave, I'm going to say, well, what makes you a master? if you don't have a slave, you're just kind of using it as a title. Yeah. I'm not one of the people who gets really involved in worrying so much about how people use a term, but if they want to know how I use it, this is what I'm going to tell them is right now you're a dominant. And when you learn to care, oh yeah, big word here. I hope everybody's listening <laughs> on the count of three, one, two, three, responsibility. When you're willing to take the responsibility for your submissive's well-being, 
then you are on the path to becoming a master. You cannot be a dom without accepting the responsibility for your submissive's well-being. Yeah, and that's what I was referencing earlier with the uh, quote-unquote insta-doms from Fifty Shades. They completely want to skirt I don't like to broad range things, but here I will, because that seems to be most of what I've talked with is skirt the responsibility and soak up all the rewards. And and I tell those people, please find a different hobby and go start collecting stamps or something. Yeah. (laughs) Jump on, go ahead and jump on the, the next upcoming bandwagon. Another question, and this one too, you have answered in your book, Igniting the Fire, The Art of Romantic Submission. What is the difference between a submissive and a slave? Uh, Another beautiful question. In the same progression that I described earlier, the play partner eventually becomes a submissive. And the submissive is somebody who knows clearly that they want to be in that serving, giving position to receive healthy and artistic commands and instructions from the one person they trust to give that to them. They might also be a bottom. So to me, submissive and dominant means the headspace, the psychology, Mm -hmm. and top and bottom is the physical. So they might also be a bottom. So they want to be on the receiving end of the toys. Some people only use the word submissive and to kind of mean all of it. When the submissive has proven themselves to be of exceptional depth in their submission, it's really real for them. It's really genuine for them. They are fulfilled by it. They are empowered by it. It makes them happy. They literally turn to their master, their owner, their dom, and they say, I would like to have a piece of jewelry that I can wear every single day because I so love my submission. That is when they would be appraised by their dom as being what I call the the black belt of submission. Mm -hmm. They're not a beginner anymore. They truly identify this way. It is deeply powerful and meaningful for them. And at that point, as a black belt of submissives, then to me, they become a slave. This is the Crow Academy definition. People may have other definitions. When I use the word slave, I mean a submissive who has really, really proved their own submissive excellence. Yeah, to me, that's the highest, the highest form. The highest compliment that I can bestow upon a submissive is that transformation from submissive to slave, which they're again, vanilla friends. They just can't quite seem to grasp it. I understand that. And on the flip side, there are societies like MAST, MAST, mm-hmm. and, and other groups around America where you'll go to a gathering of these people and it's all master slave or mistress slave couples. And it's fantastic. It's amazing to be around everybody who's living on this level of he or she is my owner. Mm -hmm. And that means everything to me. And the other person says, this is my slave. This is the most important person in the world to me. And then this is the person I protect and I guide, and it is my joy and my fulfillment to do so. It's a beautiful, beautiful energy to be around. Oh, it is. I must admit to you that I've not been able to attend any of the mass gathering. So that would be something that I look forward to in the future. Yeah, there's there's so much variety. For example, in Los Angeles, the scene right now has kind of ebbed and flowed. Um, it does that all the time. Every couple of years, the scene gets really big and there's lots of events. And then every couple of years, it kind of fades away and there's hardly anything to go to except private gatherings. But by and large, there's this huge variety of kinds of events. There's events where it's all about the fashion and there's almost no domination submission, even hardly any BDSM. The original Skin 2 Rubber Ball in London was a fashion event. And you know, when I was first going to it, when I was living in Europe, they discouraged S&M. <laughs> now, that was back. That was back. 
I know this is hard to believe, but it's, it doesn't seem that long ago. But there was a time where S&M was actually illegal in England. And so the promoters of the event were like, no, no, we're all about the latex fashion and the leather and the PVC and the lace and the velvet and great music and some shows. And it was really fun. But there was no S&M at the event. There could have been doms and subs there, but their activity was only really expressed at the pre-parties or the after-parties or the private parties. Yeah, now, that- And you still find parties like that. Now there's a couple clubs. It's much easier to find clubs where it might be a goth industrial club or a dance club or something like that where they might have a separate room for BDSM activity. And there's one that's been running forever in Los Angeles called Bar Sinister that's every single Saturday night for a long, long time. And they've simply made the upstairs area strictly for BDSM people, uh, no cameras, and people feel very safe to go up there and express the side of themselves. And people who are not in it stay downstairs on the dance floor. Hopefully I'll get out there one day soon. It's been uh, two years since I was out around California. So Nice. Another thing is uh, uh, most major cities nowadays, like you said, Asheville, um, will have some kind of BDSM society. So if you go on FetLife and you look in places, you might find a munch or a society or something like that where people can take lessons, which I highly recommend. In fact, when I came back from Europe with everything I told you before, I then joined the Society of Janus in San Francisco at the same time as everything else is going on and took every single class they had for two years. So I, I can't recommend enough. Take classes. Taking classes is great. Yeah. Our local just put on a, a BDSM 101 class that was really good. Had a decent amount of participation. I would have liked to have seen more, but that would always be the case. And even in my little bitty town, I actually live outside of Knoxville in a tiny town called Maryville. On FetLife, even in this little town, there's around 400 members and our munches every other Sunday, there's usually 20 to 30 people that show up. So it's it's not too bad for nice. a gathering for a small town. And the people are just absolutely phenomenal. And yeah. the beautiful thing about that also is one of the most common questions I get asked is, where do I meet? I'm new to this. Where do I meet a person who would want to do this with me? And munches, even if you the munch is not in and of itself a BDSM event, which they never are. It's just sitting around a table and having a nice meal with other people. It's a great way to get yourself vetted by the local community. People see you, they talk to you, they learn about you. And there's nothing better than having somebody else in the community say, hey, I know someone who's looking for a dom or looking for a sub, and I'd like to introduce you, or you should both come to this party and meet each other there. Yeah. And that first invite to to a local community. I know when I moved here and started participating, it even though I had been in the lifestyle for many years since 95 and uh, get that first invite, it's still a rush. It's like, oh, well, I've, I've, I've proven myself and I'm accepted into that community, which is such a loving place to be here. They put so much emphasis on training and not just training a slave or a submissive, but like you say, the uh, dominant should put in twice as much work. And that's one of the big pushes that they always take new members aside or new new people aside and have a little chat with them. The leaders do and tell them, okay, nice. you know, find out what their intention with the community is first and then get into a real dialogue about how the community can help them to learn and what they want to bring into the community. This area, I can honestly say, has one of the best that I have been a part of personally. That sounds fantastic. I'm going to have to come visit that at some point. That sounds oh, really good. Please do. That would be a huge honor. I was going to say that very similar. 
when I was, it was in Amsterdam that I went to my very, very, very first fetish club ever. And there was a rubber clothing store called Damask. And in the red light district of Amsterdam, I was just walking around Amsterdam. I saw, walked to the red light, saw some BDSM supply stores. Prior to that, my very first submissive that I told you about, she and I had gone into adult bookstores together and kind of looked at stuff, mm -hmm. but not like what I saw in Amsterdam. And so I decided to walk the whole red light and I came upon this clothing store called Damask, and there was a flyer there saying, you know, kinky party. It was called the Kinky Club. And I asked them about it, and I had a million questions for them, and they were really happy to answer my questions. And so I went down to the local flea market, and I got a, a used pair of leather pants, and I had this kind of velvet pirate shirt thing that I put on, and uh, went into this club, and it was great. It was like something out of a Bugs Bunny cartoon almost, where you go down to this door down on the, on the docks, and you knock on the door. And this little thing slides back. <laughs> <laughs> the person looks at you, and if they approve of your look, then the door opened, and it was of course, of course, it was this giant guy, and he looks at you, and you say, and you're kind of nervous, you're like, uh, I'm here for the kinky club, and you're sort of hoping you're at the right place, <laughs> and, and he's and he lets you go in, or if you're not dressed, he demands you open your bag and show him that you have a very strict fetish dress code. Mm -hmm. He demands that you show him that you have the proper clothes in your bag, and then you walk down the stairs and you pay your five dollar fee, and then another guy opens the door to the club, and all of a sudden, you know, house music's pumping in there, and it's. it's wild and crazy and immediately there's people doing scenes in the corners and stuff and it's just eye candy everywhere unbelievable and i literally took my first step through that door and i'm not joking not exaggerating the first word that popped into my head was the word home wow yeah and that describes me here with our local community though oh man i really got to get to amsterdam that sounds like an awesome place <laughs> It is. Amsterdam's really cool. It's, it's the, I don't know if the kinky club is still happening, but like I said, like Los Angeles, a lot of cities will have the, the fetish scene, the kink scene, the BDSM scene ebb and flow. So there have been other scene clubs that have come and gone since then. But yeah, it's, it's definitely worth checking out. European scene, they do it differently. Yeah. Um, BDSM, hard BDSM, floggers and battles and whips and crops and everything else, more of an American thing. Mm -hmm. Fetish fashion. The spectacular, amazing latex clothes and the high heels to, to the sky and everything, the wild, crazy looks and the crazy hair, more of a European thing. That's why when I came back from uh, Europe, I also started Club Iniquity. I was an event producer, so I started up my own fetish club. And I tried to bring that flavor of Europe and mix it with the BDSM emphasis of America. Yeah, it's definitely worth checking mm. out. The, the European scene, anywhere in the world that they have a kink scene, it's wonderful to see how they do it differently. Mm -hmm. And also where all the common overlaps are. Yeah, I'm supposed to get over to the Mark before long. It's a club over in Nashville, about three hours away from me. Hopefully I can hit it pretty soon, but I hear really good things about it as well. Now, you gave me a list of different things that you, I guess, do presentations on. Is that where that comes from? Um, I'm not sure. <laughs> oh, okay. What's on the list? There was three things on it that why BDSM is its own drug. And you kind of touched on this a little bit oh, at right. the very right. beginning. Let's see. It says why BDSM is its own drug and why you do not need to be intoxicated to get the most out of it. Why intoxication in play can be dangerous. So we would all right. love to hear what you have on that. Okay. Well, let's start first with, we, I mean, we talked about how BDSM on the receiving end can produce, it, it just naturally does release endorphins in the body. That's your body's way of handling intensity. Uh, endorphins, for people who don't know, are natural opiates or opiate-like substances that occur in the body. So common opiates are, in the, if you have an extreme sports injury and you have to go get surgery, they might give you morphine. 
Mm-hmm. And I've done my share of extreme sports and had my sports injuries. And I can tell you that morphine, uh, the reason the Gales carry it in, in the army and whatnot is because it's extremely fast acting and it just removes all pain. And it gives you a very floaty, very euphoric feeling. Well, guess what? Your body makes this on its own. It's wonderful. It's incredible. And when you hear submissives talking about getting into that flying, floating away space, that's the endorphins kicking in. Now, can endorphins kick in in a very small way? So you don't necessarily notice it. Yes, they can. Can endorphins kick in in a medium way where you just feel good, you feel happy, you're on the, the St. Andrew's Cross, whatever, and the toys are making you feel you know, like more like a massage? Yeah, that's a good medium dose. They also can kick in within the course of S&M in a very, very flooding of the bloodstream that is so intense that when the submissive is taken down off the St. Andrew's Cross, they actually need to sit on the floor. Their legs are rubbery. Mm-hmm. And you, you ask them how they feel. And they might look you in the eye and smile and be and tell you that they feel amazing, but they're not going to be able to function for a few minutes. They need to have the your body naturally reabsorbs the endorphins back in when the time is right. If the body's getting signals of some kind of intensity coming in, it'll keep producing the endorphins. And when it stops getting those signals, it will start to reabsorb them. And so that's the person coming down. And obviously giving, you know, I always recommend after seeing, give the bottom, give the submissive a glass of water to help start flushing this through the body. So that's for the submissive. Now for the top, like I was saying, if this is your ecstasy, if this is your personal bliss, to be someone's dominant, to be someone's top, which for example, for me, it absolutely is. And it sounds like for you too. Yes. Then you will have such a wonderful feeling. Now it could also be oxytocin. Oxytocin is the, they call it the love and trust endorphin. Mm-hmm. Oxytocin, it could be dopamine from just feeling good, you're swinging the whips. You're kind of getting that little bit of dopamine rush from a, what you get from a workout, like a runner's high. It, you know, you're, you're looking at your slave. You're getting turned on. It's another dopamine release. Not exactly sure about the serotonin component, but very interesting study. Um, this was done during the early 90s. I think it was Dr. Pomeroy of the San Francisco Sex Institute. They tried to study the biochemistry of people in S&M versus extreme athletes. And they found that people in S&M have a similar biochemistry to mountain climbers and race car drivers. And what you find in those two subgroups is that they need a higher level of intensity to achieve their, let's call it their zen, their perfect balance centered state. You talk to a mountain climber who's not on the mountain and you know they won't even flinch at stuff that makes the rest of us go like, oh, something intense is happening. <laughs> their level of intensity, they're used to such a higher level of intensity and, and they love it, they crave it, they keep going back for more. So it's interesting. And the, one of the main chemicals they were measuring, by the way, was serotonin. Serotonin is in the one of the chemicals that brings about that feeling of being centered, of being almost in a spiritual state. So literally, BDSM, oxytocin, dopamine, serotonin, it affects all of those in a positive way. And then just the straight up endorphin opiate reaction of the body, you have all of that going on, which brings about the question, why would you even need to get intoxicated to do BDSM? Now, some clubs, like I said, back in San Francisco, back in the day, there was a zero intoxication, zero tolerance, zero intoxication. And that's how we all came to literally feel everything I'm talking to you about very tangibly. Every one of us was very aware of this effect. And the endorphin rushes were crystal clear. The dominant trances were crystal clear. The bonding between the dom and the sub was crystal clear. And we knew it, was un- it wasn't some aphrodisiac effect from some other substance. It was real. And it's wonderful. It's magical. Now, you go around the world to other cities, and you often find an open bar or you know, at least a bar to be able to have alcohol for, uh, in a BDSM club. 
The problem with this is that let's just start with alcohol. We can extend it from there. Alcohol falsely increases a person's threshold. And I tell my subs, if we're going to go do a scene publicly, if they have come home from work really stressed, I will let them have one drink. If they drink, I say, you can have one drink. I don't care what that drink is. It could be a beer, it could be a glass of wine, it could be a Mai Tai, whatever. I personally don't drink, so I'm not really that knowledgeable about the different effects, but I can tell, you know, alcohol percentage. Mm -hmm. I have found that letting my sub have one single drink, not two, not two ever, it will help them shed maybe the irritation from their work day. It will help them relax from the irritation of the traffic driving home, something like that. After that point, the reason I do not let them have anything further, and in some cases nothing at all, is because when I'm doing a good BDSM scene on my submissive, my slave, there's a couple things that I absolutely insist on. One, that if they need to signal me, with a hand signal for a safe word or a safe word vocally or the five finger system that they're doing so accurately, that they're accurately representing their experience. If someone is too drunk, too intoxicated, they might sit there and take much heavier sensation than they usually do. And then when they come down, they're angry, they're upset, they're feeling like, why'd you go on me so hard? Well, guess what? person was drunk. Now, I will make a side note here. It is also the dominance responsibility. In fact, that's something I would like to talk about in a minute mm-hmm. is dominance ability to say no critically important. Oh, absolutely. To, I'm talking about to a, to a request for something um, and dominant limits. So alcohol can make the person, their threshold become so distorted that they fail to signal when they should have. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's one. Number two, if someone is so drunk that they're not going to remember the scene that I did to them the next day, I feel gypped. I'm like, I put a lot of work into this, <laughs> making a great scene for this person. I damn well want them to remember it the next day. I want them to be able to talk about it, reminisce about it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the ability to signal properly, the ability to remember it for the next day, the ability to communicate about it afterwards accurately to debrief. I like to almost always debrief after every single scene. You know, was there anything that didn't work for you? What was your favorite part of the scene? What would you absolutely like to do again? And I recommend people do that. I, I teach that. It's really good to debrief after every scene. Oh, yeah. It's one of the, the big points that I always make here at the Crypt is aftercare and check-ins. Exactly. Exactly. Now, in California, marijuana is now legal. So people can probably start doing marijuana. I don't know if they can do it in clubs yet or not. I don't think it's quite there yet. But you have to imagine that, again, marijuana is known for marijuana, medical marijuana is known for alleviating physical pain. What does that tell you? That tells you that it's changing the skin's threshold. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, marijuana also has a, has been associated as an aphrodisiac. So maybe it's causing a dopamine release. But again, are you getting an accurate reporting of the slave's experience? Are they going to, it affects short-term memory. Are they going to be able to talk to you about it afterwards? Are they going to remember it clearly the next day, et cetera? So these are all considerations in taking the perspective that BDSM in and of itself, on its own, without intoxicants of any kind, it is a natural drug and it's wonderful and it's legal. And if you're being safe, sane and consensual, then go to town and have fun. That's the way I see it. Going back to what you brought up about doms being able to say no and the dominant limits that they have. I know I've got a lot of personal limits and I have actually called a scene more times than probably all of my play partners, submissives and slaves combined because of one reason or another. My head just wasn't in it. Something was coming into it from the outside, something of that nature. And I just felt that I may go to an unsafe place. So uh, what are your thoughts on that? Um, My first thought is I commend you on that. And my second thought is I'm exactly the same way. I do absolutely teach safe words. I will openly agree that there will come a point when a dominant sub 
a master and slave might play with each other so often that they transcend safe words and they don't really need to use them anymore. But I think it's very important to have them in the beginning and to know that they're always there. When I teach, I generally teach the, the stoplight system modified with a couple extra colors from the Crow Academy style. Mm-hmm. But green, yellow, red is the basis. And so green is really obvious. Yellow is pretty obvious. And then you talk about red. And in my students, I can sometimes see them have this feeling of like, oh, wow, something terrible must have happened if you call red. And I explain, no, that's not the case. You call red if you need to call red. And then I go into detail about what red means, et cetera. Red means full stop. You know, all the bondage comes off. The scene is over. Mm-hmm. And I explain that this is perfectly okay because that means that you're respecting the communication. And then exactly like what you just said, I informed them that I have called red more than all of my submissives combined because I used to do shows every week at this club in San Francisco, and sometimes the audience, it's open to the general public. So sometimes the audience was very respectful, and sometimes it really wasn't. And I'd be doing a great scene with my sub, and some of the audience would be like, hit her harder! And I'd be like, that's it. I, I can't stand this crowd tonight. I am not continuing the scene. And I'd lean over and I'd tell my slave, I'd say, hey, honey, the scene's going really well, but I'm going to call Red because this audience is really bothering me, and we'll continue at home, or we'll continue, we'll play again another time. Wow. So, yes. Absolutely. That's, that's that's the dominant being responsible, knowing yourself as a dominant, knowing your own limits of what you can tolerate from outside factors and being being good and understanding yourself and where you don't want to take the scene. So one of the questions I've had asked recently, an unusually high amount, because I think, again, the Fifty Shades crowd has this feeling that if the and when I say Fifty Shades crowd, I'm not trying to be derogatory. We all understand the reference. I'm just talking, I mean, the new people who came into the scene because they heard about it from Fifty Shades of Grey. So these newcomers come into the scene and the dominance will feel like, well, if I meet a girl who wants me to tie her up and wants me to do this and this and this, then even though uh, I'm so new to this, I, I guess I better do it or I'm failing as a dom. And it's that attitude of I guess I better do it or I'm failing as a dom, that that's a fallacy. And so I will turn to any dominant student of mine and I will insist that they identify a limit. Now, there's this myth of the no limits crowd, and I'm going to call it a myth. And the reason I'm calling it a myth is because if I every time I've ever met someone who says I have no limits, then I will say something absurd to them. And I will say, you know, if a sub, if a sub tells me they have no limits, I'll say, Okay, so you don't mind if I get a pit bull to do you up the ass while I pee in your eyeballs? And they'll say, no, you can't do that. But, oh, really? You have a limit about that? You know, it's ridiculous. It's absurd. But the point is that there's no such thing as a no limits dom or sub. The biggest problem is most subs have this understanding or this, this mistaken belief that it's all about the sub's limits. If the sub doesn't want something, it can be a hard limit, it doesn't happen, soft limit, it might happen when they build trust or have some experience under their belt. And I will watch doms actually reinforce this. Mm-hmm. That they want to know the sub's limits. And then next thing you know, the dom is saying like, you know, hey, I'd like to, let's, let's say the dominant is a very monogamous man. And the sub says, I really want to have a threesome with another person. And the dominant feels like, well, oh, well, you know, uh, I guess we're supposed to be experimental. And so I guess I should do this. And then they do it and it doesn't go right. And they, they feel bad about the experience and then they get resentful. And I'm like, all you had to do was say, I'm sorry, not into it. I'm a monogamous person and I want to keep it monogamous and that's my limit. And yes, it is possible for limits to clash, in which case you have to negotiate through them. But the point is at least you're negotiating through it and you're talking about it and you come to a resolution or you come to the understanding that maybe it's not such a good match. And so the dominant, again, has to be willing to stand by their own beliefs and their own feelings if you are a romantic style dom like myself and you have you meet a sub who wants to be you know really strict military style which is a perfectly viable style not my style but it's a viable style 
Mm-hmm. Um, I borrow elements from it, but you know, if you if that sub really wants that level of intensity all the time, uh, you know, I'm sure you've encountered the sub who thinks that being a slave is is about having their head down and walking in chains 24 hours a day, seven days a week, which is nonsense. Yeah, uh, there might be somebody out there who does that. <laughs> I don't want to sub like that. You know, I've explained to people that the actual amount of time that a slave is in that very intense, deep, standing tall, eyes down, yes, sir, no, sir, yes, master, et cetera, training, et cetera, is maybe 5% of a given day. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, that there's a lot of Addie's relaxing, telling stupid jokes, watching dumb movies together, cooking, laughing, going on bike rides together. There's a lot of normal life in a master slave relationship in a, in a 24-7, even a hardcore 24-7. That's just called being human beings. Yeah. But the master presented with a slave who says, I want this kind of strictness. If the master does it, the dominant doesn't say no, that's not going to happen. They're literally setting themselves up to have a bad experience. So the dominant has to be able to state his or her own limits as well. Critically important. Very, very brushed under the carpet, much more than I approve of as far as like the gym when I read online and whatnot. And this, this idea that dominance of these all-powerful gods who have no limits. Bullshit, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And one of the biggest draws for me when I was first getting started was the open communication. Uh, not to get too deep into personal history or familyhood or Freudian psychology, but growing up, everything was closed off in my house. We weren't allowed to talk about anything that wasn't approved by the Bible. So being able to step into a relationship where it didn't matter what it was, we would talk about it. And my relation, I'm married. I don't think I've told you that, but my relationship with my wife is vanilla. Now she is very much a supporter and goes to dinner with uh, me and my, well, she would actually go over to Asheville and have dinner on her own with my former slave. And there's a potential right now that we're trying each other out a little bit. And so she'll go to dinner with she and I, but that open communication that bleeds over not just into the vanilla marriage with sprinkles, but also into my professional life where I am more apt to speak up and say things that maybe before had I not had the experience of this lifestyle, I wouldn't have done that. And that is absolutely wonderful. And again, that's another thing I commend you on. Um, it's funny you're bringing this up because that's another thing that, that this is when people say, do you think a DS relationship is better than a vanilla relationship? And I say, not necessarily. But I definitely think there are things that the vanilla world could learn from us. And having our extreme emphasis on communication is absolutely, I agree with you 100%. One of the best things about being in a DS relationship, we, we push the envelope farther. We have to communicate. We don't have the luxury of sweeping it under the carpet when we're doing all this intense stuff. And you're absolutely right. It can help a person become a better communicator in general, better communicator at work, better communicate in vanilla relationships and friendships, absolutely across the board. And talking to to some of my vanilla friends, gentlemen that I grew up with from our early teenage years and him not really knowing anything about the lifestyle other than the stereotypical things and explaining it to him and him listening to the podcast to try to gain a better understanding of who I am and what this is about, what it means to me, why I find so much value in it. He's actually come up with a lot of questions. He said, look, you know, all of this other stuff, the dominance, the submission, that stuff is all for you. That doesn't interest me. But what does interest me is the communication side of it. 
and the amount of love and respect because I have what I call rules to love by that I put in every episode. And that the quote from Paul Young about submission, not being about obedience or control, but about relationships of love and respect, Mm -hmm. uh, that's one of his big things. And that I will receive a lot of emails on because of the podcast. People hear that. They're like, well, we had no idea. Yeah, we saw the story of O or Fifty Shades. And which them throwing the story of O in there always shocks me when that happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, two two markedly different qualities of writing, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So <laughs> they uh, they come up with this, and and that's a lot of what people are are mostly interested in because I do push this as a BDSM one hundred and one podcast in a relationship setting for search engines and things of that nature. So it's Mm -hmm. really refreshing to talk to somebody else that has that same experience. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and a funny side note, some people know this, some people don't, but did you know that the story of O was actually written, uh, Pauline Riage wrote it to her lover who was away in the war as a way to seduce him. And apparently it worked and they got married and lived happily ever after because of that story. Yes. But I only learned that from you actually. (laughs) Okay. Cool. (laughs) Yeah. One of the other things that's interesting that, that you just touched on is the submissive who their only experience of BDSM or fetish or kink is from a fictional story. And this gets back to the responsibility of the dominant and being able to help the girl or the man, doesn't matter, understand that that is a fictional story, that those characters are not real, and that you cannot base a real-life BDSM relationship on that. I believe the real world, I think you'd agree, the real world of BDSM is superior to what you read in these stories, way more fulfilling. Oh, absolutely. So when I meet these people, I will help them understand that I'm really happy that that story got them to want to step through the door and explore this. I, I rapidly dispel the myths, like, you know, one one is that, you know, if I'm a submissive, does this mean you're going to be, you know, giving me to other men to use? I've literally I've had that a question asked many times. I'm like, no, that does not mean that at all. Where did you get that from? Oh, well, that's what, you know, Sir Stephen did to O in the story of O. Mm-hmm. And I said, okay, this is your real person. I'm a real person. What do you want to see happen as a submissive? You don't have to have all the answers now. This is a very highly communicative relationship, and we will continue to explore where we want to go with things as we move forward. I'll tell you what I like. You tell me what you like. We're going to talk about stuff all the time after every scene, and we're going to ground it in reality. Another one is gore. They're, they're fun books. If you've ever read one, they're really fun. Mm-hmm. John Norman was a great, was a good, you know, a great author, but he's a good author. He made 50 books about this planet called Gore, where women are absolutely second-class citizens with no actual rights or hardly any rights. And the thing that you'll find is that there's large groups of people who call themselves Gorian. And on a number of occasions, I have met women who were in a Gorian relationship. And unfortunately, most of the time I meet them because they send me a letter telling me about how things went south. And I'll explain to them, well, how much did you base your relationship on these fictional books? And if they tell me a lot, I'm like, well, it's not surprising that you guys ran into problems. You put too much of the fiction above the reality of being real people. A funny side story to that is that uh, you know, the Crocatory style is not Gorian style, but one of the slave positions came from a Gorian school. And uh, there's something else I will respect if a female 
wants to have the fantasy of being a second class citizen. But so much of my emphasis as a dominant is to I, I want to see my submissive excel. I want to see her succeed and grow and become a more amazing person every day, even if it's just a tiny, tiny, tiny little bit. And so the idea of the females being suppressed or something like that in the course of a relationship ongoing, that would be oppressive to me. So that's back to the, the dom themselves being able to say, no, I'm not going to do that. I don't want to be oppressive to myself in that. It goes against my my basic beliefs of what I want to see for my slave, for my partner. Mm -hmm. And again, this dovetails into a slave to me is someone who's amazing and exceptional, and I want them to see them lifted upward. So the funny side note is that in Sao Paulo, Brazil, I went down there to teach a workshop and to attend their big annual BDSM gathering. Sao Paulo, Brazil is the largest BDSM community in Brazil. And so at this gathering, I'm meeting all these people who are passionately connected to their slave, and they tell me, how do you define yourself? And they would tell me, uh, I'm Gorian. And I was like, oh, oh, okay. And I'm like, hmm, they, they seem to have a very, you know, their Gorian looks a lot like my 24 seven. Mm -hmm. And their slaves are just having fun, having a good time. And I didn't see that same kind of two-dimensional Gorian that I saw elsewhere that I you know, get from these letters from these ladies who came from an abusive relationship. And after the whole event, which was three days long, I realized that almost every DS couple in there identified as Gorian. And then the light bulb went on inside my head. None of them had ever, and I speak, uh, I spoke enough Brazilian Portuguese to, to be able to say 24-7 and explain the concept. They didn't use that word. They, none of them called it 24-7. So they used the word Gorian in place of what you and I would just call it 24-7. And it was actually kind of detached from the John Norman books and his idea of what gore was and what it meant and what it was about. But the main point, again, really, that, that's just a funny side note. But the main point, again, is it's really important that when you meet someone who is basing their belief of what BDSM is about on a fictional story to really get them out of that headspace as quickly as possible. Yeah, 100%. And touching on some of those limits that people may have, just to throw this out there, uh, on my website, cauldronscrypt.com slash contact resources, there is a limits and interest survey that may take uh, 20 minutes to an hour if you have to look up some of the things like sounding or gates of hell for the newbies that may not know what these things are, but they can fill it out very thorough list of interests and limits, and uh, that will be emailed directly to them. Nice. One of the other things on your list here, psychology of the submissive, what it means when a woman puts that kind of trust in you, and what is she hoping for? Uh, that is a topic that being from the professional psych world, that is something that greatly interests me. I love to hear any talk on that. First of all, trust is the cornerstone of this whole experience. You cannot have really good forward moving BDSM and DS without a pretty solid footing in trust. Now, at the same time, trust is not a black and white. Trust is a gradient. When you first play with someone and you're in a public club or something like that, they're extending you some trust as they realize that you are skilled, that you are careful, that you are aware of their safety, that you respect their safe words, they're going to extend you more and more and more trust. And it is possible. I've had the experience of having a slave where the trust was so epic that it's it's like something out of myth and legend. I mean, you can hit levels of trust within the BDSM community with your own partner that are just phenomenal, truly phenomenal. So what moves the submissive uh, the psychology of the submissive that I found is that there's something about the act of serving. Uh, again, I work with couples, so I've seen this again and again in clients that they feel so fulfilled giving to their dom, they, to doing something for their dom. 
Now, it doesn't mean that they don't have other things going on in their life. They still may have projects and work and their hobbies and their art and anything else like that. But you find the submissive to be someone who is fulfilled by giving to one person who they feel has really earned that and or someone where they feel it's a nice circular exchange where they serve and devote themselves to the dom and the dom in turn gives that back in this nice cycle, gives them back instruction, commands, direction, caretaking, all of these kinds of things. Bringing back into a point that you just made about them having other things going on in their life, how important is it to you personally that your slaves have friends on their own that they spend time with. I believe you said your slave's name is Daphne. That that she has her own friends outside of your relationship and that she spends time with them. Because to me, that is something that does make a person whole. And they need that ability. I I overall agree with exactly what you just said. Uh, I think for the slave, the submissive, I'm just going to say slave now in general because that's my life. For the slave to have her own social circle, uh, her own projects, her own art form, her own interests, whether it's reading or playing video games or sports or something like that, it's critical. You you can't have exactly what you said. You have to have a whole, well-rounded human being. I kind of think of a DS relationship, honestly, as a little bit of a crucible in which both people are trying to sift off their impurities and become more and more pure in whatever form that means and improve themselves. It's a, it's the fundamental Crow Academy philosophy that there is absolutely no upper limit to how much any person, Dom or Sub, Switch, doesn't matter, to how much any person can improve themselves in some way every single day. Even if it's a very small, tiny improvement, you read one more page of a book, you finished the poem you were writing, you completed a course of study, you decided to learn a new language, you learned four words, that's fine. There's no upper limit to how much a person can improve themselves in some way every single day for their entire life until they take their last breath. So for the DS relationship, it's this perfect place for both people to really embrace that because the dom has to do it on himself to be worthy of being the leader of the sub. And the dom can also encourage the sub. Now, if the sub's naturally very proactive in this, that's awesome. It makes it much easier. But I have had subs who are not very social. And so I had to help them be more social. Uh, I had a slave for many years who had a very limited perception of beauty in the world. For her, things were either really lovely or just couldn't care less. So I gave her a writing exercise over the span of two years where every single day she had to write down three new things that she found beautiful in the world. And she was never allowed to write down the same thing twice. And so but after two years, and next thing you know, she's literally living in a more beautiful world. It was eye-opening for her. That uh, would be very closely related to the psychological practice of cognitive behavioral therapy. Yes, yes, exactly. (laughs) So um, for the submissive to have their own social circle, uh, to have friends, to be social, I think is very important. Of course, there's the obvious warning for a submissive who hooks up with a person I'm very much intentionally not using the word Dom there. Mm -hmm. A person who says, I'm going to cut you off from all your friends and family and you may not talk to them while you're my slave. Huge red flag. Okay, so just get that out there. Mm -hmm. Um, A healthy submissive, a healthy slave is a healthy human being. Okay, you don't have to have a perfect body. You don't have to be a cover girl. You don't have to be a super athlete, any of these things. But as a human being, as a soul, as a person living on the earth, you have to have healthy life practices. You have to be a forward moving person. 
And so uh, as far as embracing everything you described, yes, I totally agree. Now, as far as the submissive using other people as a sounding board for their frustrations with you, I'm going to tell you what I've told a lot of other people, which is that it comes down to this. Yes, we live in the 50 shades, post 50 shades of gray era. Mm -hmm. Yes, more people are aware of BDSM, but if they haven't investigated it, they might think it's abusive because that's how it's conveyed in Fifty Shades of Grey. So to go to a non-kinky person and start venting your frustrations with a kinky scene, you're almost intentionally setting yourself up to get a negative response. So I would. I guess I should have prefaced that with her going to other subs. Okay. Yes. That's big, big difference. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's exactly. Line that's, that's what I was leading to is, is save the fetish discussions for fetish audiences. Yes. Absolutely. Now, the other thing is, I also will point out that there are, again, we have 2 million new people, 3 million new people on FetLife who are from the Fifty Shades of Grey crowd. Mm. It's great that they're interested. It's great that they took the step to get on FetLife and try to find out more. But some of these people also bring a lot of baggage and misunderstandings with them. And so you will find let's say online, for example, people who are calling themselves a submissive, and yet all they do is badmouth their dom. And you get the feeling that their dom has no idea what they're saying. And there's 30,000 forums on FetLife. Yeah. So maybe their dom belongs to one, they belong to a different one. My advice is simply this. If you are submissive and you want to go explore with other submissives, be common sense about, is this person when, when they speak, the person you're approaching, when they speak, do they speak like they're coming from a place where they themselves believe that DS is a beautiful, successful experience? Because if they're talking like they believe DS is oppressive and their dominant is such an asshole and, oh, my God, he asked me to take out the garbage today and it smelled bad and how could he do such a thing? And I'm like, are you sure you're a submissive? <laughs> you know, you kind of said you're bitching and complaining a lot. So the point being, yes, I agree with you. But also submissives out there who do want to go talk to other submissives and get more perspective, don't get sucked into anyone else's drama. Absolutely. And it's also important to point out that that can often be a test for me of the strength of the bond there, because if they are going to go to someone else and there are always certain guidelines that are negotiated with that in my personal relationships, but if they're, they're more apt to go to somebody else to talk to them, then as a dominant, I feel I'm doing something incorrect. I have not provided them with the proper communication, training, and trust, or they yeah, would be absolutely. coming to me right off the bat. But exactly, and and yeah. in the times that that has happened, that's usually the case. They will come to me, explain, I'm frustrated over this. I'm not really prepared to have a conversation to to dive into that yet. I need to figure it out and ask permission to uh, maybe mull it over with someone else first. Right, I, I completely agree. It's it's. Uh... The dominant must initially really make it clear about the open avenues of communication. I have had slaves who were very not communicative. Like you, they grew up in a household where there was just no talk. The mother and the father said, do this. The child did that. And if the child had a concern, the, the parents didn't want to hear it. Yeah. And so, and they might, they might be healthy in every other way, but they just did not have a very good communication ability. And so sometimes the Dom, if this is a really wonderful person and you love them and you believe that the relationship is good, otherwise you may have to get in there and teach them of how to communicate, how to talk. Sometimes it can feel like you're prying the information out of them, but overall it's more like a, it sounds like coaxing a, a shy animal, if you will, mm -hmm. and get them to believe 
that communication is a good thing and can be successful. The final thing on the list that I wanted to touch on, and I wanted to save this one for last because it sounds like it could be pretty fun, is your role-playing games. Domination and submission for beginners, a good place to start and easy for most people. So where do you right. go with that one? Well, that's when I'm teaching uh, absolute beginners, usually couples, like a, a seminar just for couples or something like that. Mm -hmm. What I will tell them is a lot of them sit, they'll, they'll ask questions like, you know, okay, where do I start? What's the first thing? I want to be her dominant. And I say, do you want to use the, want to use the toys? Like, yeah, that too. But really, I, we just like, we want to have the vibration, the orientation towards each other as dominant and submissive. And I say, okay, let's talk about role-playing games. So most people played role-playing games as children. It's just what we do as children. We have these wonderful imaginations and we come up with characters from TV or cartoons or comic books and we act them out. So I explained to these people that role-playing as an adult is pretty much the same thing. It's really not different. It's just that the scripts that we write might be a little more sophisticated, you know, with better, better grammar and syntax, if you will. So there's many, many, many different kinds of role-play games you can do. But the goal in role-playing games is to be able to embody a role that is dominant and has dominant characteristics, and the other person embodies a role that fits with the first role that is submissive or has submissive characteristics. So common ones are, like I mentioned in the beginning, uh, pirate and wench, vampire and victim, crime boss and other uh, opposite crime families boss and secretary. I was describing earlier how Daphne and I have put together role plays where we get deeply into the playing the different factions of the Star Wars universe. And I kidnap her and interrogate her. We took that one seriously, seriously far. So it's really up to your imagination what roles you want to play. It can be anything at all. But again, the person who wants to learn dominance can start by playing a dominant character in the role play and the person who wants to learn submission can play the submissive character of the role play. You can take it out of a movie. You can take it out of a book you read. doesn't matter. TV show. It's all good. It's all the same. The nice thing about it and the reason it's so good for beginners is that the role, the character that you're playing is so nicely defined. You don't have to worry about, am I the actual person? Am I being dominant as per the appraisal of my peers? Because that's not part of the role play. The dominance you're playing is simply already contained in the character. Daphne and I are huge Black Sails fans. If I want to play Captain Flint and she wants to play Eleanor and, and I'm going to you know kidnap her and steal her away so that the enemy pirate who has a big thing going for Eleanor, he's going to have to come confront me. And of course, if it's a very vocal role play, I won't gag her. But at some point, there might be a gag as part of the bondage and part of everything else. And so all I have to do in that case is be Captain Flint. And I can literally borrow every single line, every single word I say from his character. Now, the beautiful psychological, it's also, it's also like cognitive behavioral therapy, isn't it? <laughs> the beautiful thing that's happening is I am literally, as the being Captain Flint comes into my body and my posture, because he's tall and he's strong, I literally would be shifting my own posture. Perhaps I'll even pull out some clothing to help me get into the role more. And the way the, the choices I do, the gestures, the way I hold my shoulders and my arms and, and the expression I use in my hands, these become behaviors that you get to try on like a piece of clothing. And when you start doing more role plays, you'll try on different pieces of clothing, different characters. And pretty soon you might start finding overlap areas where you're like, oh, I get it. This is kind of what a dominant character feels like. And 
then you get into it from a purely, purely kinesthetic, psychophysiological understanding of how your body changes when you're feeling more dominant. And then when you go to become dominant without a role play, your body already has a source of comparison from your day-to-day, just got home from work, headspace to the headspace uh, and the body language and the posture of when you're ready to start getting into a DS headspace. It's the training wheels of domination and submission. That's what I consider role play to be the training wheels of domination and submission. And everything that I said for the dominant, flip it to the other side for the submissive playing her role. If she feels, yeah, I want to learn about submission, he or she again, and the role they play uh, in the case of Daphne playing Eleanor, for example, it's a chance for her to, the, the Eleanor one actually is, because uh, Eleanor in the movie, in the TV show Black Sails is a very powerful, very strong character. Mm-hmm. And so she might play a more resisting, more fighting. But of course, the story, the script has Captain Flint gaining the upper hand and whatnot. And that can be a really fun dialogue. And it's, and it's playful and it's fun. So in the course of her exploring this submissive position uh, and enjoying being the character, she gets to sort of embrace herself and the kind of submissive she wants to be. Maybe she'll choose to be uh, something softer. Like Eleanor says, a very intense character. So maybe we'll choose a different role play where she chooses a very soft character. Maybe we'll do some kind of role play about almost like Beauty and the Beast, where the dominant is so up on the throne and powerful and intense and the female is soft and demure and good-hearted and wants to do the right thing and vulnerable you know trapped in the beast's castle that kind of thing and so that allows the submissive again to embrace a different kind of submissive character and again as she goes on trying on these pieces of clothing these different characters she can start to figure out who she is a submissive and how she wants to translate that into real life when time comes to actually serve her dominant it makes a lot of sense on why you train that way because the vampire fetish or role play is actually where I got my start. Oh, really? And and I'm still to this day very passionate about it. Back in the 90s, you had Buffy the Vampire Slayer and uh, Interview with a Vampire coming out. But even before those movies, it was an interest of mine since I was a child. So uh, that was something that I had played with prior to and then I met somebody who shared that interest and she and I uh, she was actually four years older than I was and had some experience because her family was very much an open family when it came to communication and her mother and father were very much into the BDSM lifestyle so oh, she, nice. yeah she had a lot of education and none of it was abusive it's always important to me to say that she was raised in a in a well-rounded very loving non-abusive household that just happened to practice BDSM and also take vacations at a nudist colony in Florida. Very, very liberally minded. That's fine. Very. Yeah. Where mine was extremely conservative and there were a lot more barriers that I had to break down within myself to be even comfortable with getting started in this. Though the curiosity was at a maximum, the comfort level was just incredibly low. Well, that is the last one on the list. I really appreciate your time, your knowledge, your information. Where can people find you? What's your website? The website is www.crowacademy.com. That's the main portal. Then I also have a website that is nothing but absolutely free lessons that discuss domination and submission and the kind of complexities that can come up in a DS relationship. And that website is arcaneadvice.com. A R C A N E 
A-D-V-I-C-E. Then there's the YouTube videos, my YouTube channel, the search from YouTube, Master Arcane Crow. Uh, we have an Instagram page, which is just Crow Academy, one word. And that is where we express just kind of our romantic view of what DS is about. We make it very clear that it's about really, really positive, happy, loving, dominant, submissive relationships and, and very sexy. And we have a Crow Academy Twitter that is still in the developmental stage. And then very, very soon, crowacademy.com is going to have its members lounge. And that's going to be a whole new ballgame. I'll be doing monthly webinars on there, which are for members only. Uh, there's going to be a members forum area where Crow Academy members can freely ask questions and talk with each other. All kinds of videos and more materials. There's a whole free members library, which will be documents and videos they can download and, at their leisure. Of course, the first book of the Crow Academy is available on ebook now. And the hardback copy is a hair breadth away. It is going to be beautiful. It's got this super high quality synthetic leather cover with gold stamping on it. It's all done on photographic paper with hundreds of photos. Every single page is a work of art. Very, very proud of this. And that should be available extremely soon. And that's my book, Igniting the Fire, The Art of Romantic Submission. And very proud of the fact that Ken Marcus and Perry Gallagher did all the photos for it. Oh, wow. So yeah, a lot of good stuff happening. Yeah, I'm really excited about the hardcover coming out on that. I think that was actually one of the first things that I had messaged you as soon as I bought the book on Amazon was, okay, hardcover. I literally just saw that they gave me the first sample of the book and then it wasn't up to my standards and so they we, we changed a few things and they sent me photos of the second sample which is going to be here next week and it looks so beautiful it's I'm, this is something that i will personally be very proud to be sharing with the world excellent oh I, I know that it will be good coming from you your standards are right up there with mine if not beyond and i want to say to the listeners that all of the websites contact information i'm going to put in the show notes so if you uh can't write that down when you're listening. Just go to cauldronscrypt.com slash show notes, click on Master Arcane Interview, and you can find links to all of his stuff. I'll put the link to his book, uh, his Instagram, courses, websites that he mentioned there. So again, that's cauldronscrypt.com slash show notes. There will be the Master Arcane Interview listed right there for you to go to. Arcane, again, it has been an absolute pleasure talking to you and uh, I can't wait Same to see here. this I can't wait to see this book coming out and let's stay in touch. Absolutely, Cauldron. I, I thank you for the interview and I think it's great that you're doing the show and I yeah, let's just keep educating people because this is a, a wonderful world to share. And now those rules to love by. Rule number one, safe, sane, consensual and informed. Rule number two, Kinky, K-N-K-I, from the Kinky app available on all platforms. That stands for knowledge, no intolerance, kindness, and integrity. And the quote from Mr. Paul Young, Submission is not about authority and it's not about obedience. It is all about relationships of love and respect. Next week on The Crypt, I will be sharing an interview with you that I did with Fun Size. She is a switch with over a decade of experience and a co-founder and administrator of the online community, The Order of Avalon. In the meantime, visit cauldronscrypt.com to sign up for our emailing list, to get subscribed to the podcast so you never miss an episode, and to also help support the show through Patreon. This has been Master Cauldron for cauldronscrypt.com. Unearth the truth.